Hi folks, this is Jack Spearfield with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Monday, October 3rd, 2011. This is episode 754 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about the... Practical considerations for self-sufficiency and self-reliance and the difference between the two terms, one that gets overlooked by many people. Today's going to be a different show. It's Monday. I'm supposed to be doing a listener feedback show. Just didn't feel like doing one today. Just didn't, folks. I got here, wasted an hour of my time trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do for feedback today, which ones I was going to take. Didn't get motivated by it and said, hey, wait a minute, Jack, uh, you can change the rules. You tell people to change the rules all the time, so I'm changing the rules. No listener feedback show today. Instead, we're going to talk about this subject that I think is very important, especially since we are now uh, of the first show of a new month. And this is the first day of a show anyway. October 1st was the first day officially. First day of the last quarter of the year. October, November, December. We're wrapping up the year. And I think I want people thinking about increasing self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. What more can you ask from a company than for them to tell you who they are, what they do in their title, and then do it. All the resources you need, ready made and ready to go. Point, click, order, sent straight to your home. Everything from gardening to personal defense to tactical to long-term food storage and everything else you can possibly think of, you will find at Ready Made Resources. I'm waiting to hear from Robert sometime today, who won the free AR-15 upper, valued at about $900 that they're giving away uh, to the contest winners. So not only are they a great sponsor, they're a great show supporter to give away a great prize like that. Remember, they gave... Uh, uh, Nurse Brandy is who we will call her, the AR-7 in the last contest they ran. So uh, good people to support because they support you. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. You know, I talk a lot about things like AR-15s and AR-15 uppers and AR-7 survival rifles and lever-action rifles and everything else out there under the sun that falls underneath the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution and the right to keep and bear arms, whether it's for self-sufficiency by putting squirrels in the stew pot or self-defense by keeping people out of your house. But all of those implements, all of those firearms, are absolutely nothing but very expensive clubs uh, if you don't have ammo for them. So you want to make sure you have a good supply of ammunition at all times, and you want to practice with those guns, because if you can't hit the broadside of a barn, they're useless as well. So check out BulkAmmo.com, and you'll find the other precious metal, as I call it, copper-jacketed lead. You'll find it in uh, good supply. You'll find them always in stock. You'll find them always shipping lightning fast, and you'll find uh, bulk quantities of your favorite ammunition calibers there. Uh, next up, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, remember to check out the forum in the gear shop and do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content, you get a bunch of cool, cool stuff, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. I'm going to wrap that up real quick today because I want to get right into this topic. Um, you know, 
like I said at the beginning of the episode, I just kind of didn't feel like a feedback show today. And I didn't feel like putting together a, uh, a typical show today either with a bunch of research behind it and all. I want to do something a little bit like when I used to be in the car going, hey, from the personal mobile studio, and just shoot from the hip and tell you what I think and tell you some of the things I've been thinking about and how they integrate in my life. And I hope that, that that's what we get out of today because uh, I don't even have really an outline. I'm, I'm down to what I used to have, which is... Uh, it's on, it was on the computer screen, but basically it would be the same thing that I would have had four or five bullet points on a note card stuck in the console of the car back when I used to do shows like that. And the reason I'm thinking this way is I've been looking at my life very deeply lately and going, even though we downsized, even though we, uh, we rented a garbage dumpster when we moved out of our house in Arlington and anything we couldn't give away or sell, and most, we sold very little, we gave away almost anything that we thought anybody would really want and things that we were not easily, you know, easy to give away, we got rid of, we just threw out. And even with all that, I've been looking around my house and going, how much of the stuff that I have is really part of my self-sufficiency or my self-reliance? Which, which, you know, which role do they fill? And for how long and for what percent. And if they don't fill either one of those roles, that doesn't mean they need to go. That doesn't mean I don't have things I like and have fun with. Uh, but what's, what purpose of, if they don't have self-sufficiency or self-reliance connotations to them, what recreational role do they fill? And am I actually partaking in that recreation? And if the answer is I'm not partaking, partaking the uh, recreation, either I don't have my life balance and I need to take more time fishing and hunting, for instance, or maybe I don't need those things anymore. Maybe they're for a different time in my life. How much crap do I really need? I've been thinking that way. And how does it relate to self-reliance and self-sufficiency? And because of that, because I've had that on my mind, that I've been thinking about things like buying another piece of land, and where do I do that, and does it work out? And yes, I checked out the land that I had mentioned briefly on one of the other shows. Yes, it's a nice place. Yes, I'm going to give further details to the MSB. No, it probably won't be this week. It'll probably be next week. I've got Salt Lake coming up. But I don't know if it's going to work for me or not yet. I haven't made a decision, and I figure I'll give you the details in full after I've made my decision and can tell you which way I'm going to go with it. Okay, I just think that's the right way to do it. But with all of these things, I've been asking myself things like, when I'm going to do something, even if it doesn't cost me money, if it's going to cost me time and effort, how will this improve either my self-sufficiency, my self-reliance, or my quality of life? And I'm getting to a point where I believe that if it doesn't do one of those three things, I don't want it. Not I don't need it, not I'm going to do without it, not I'm going to sacrifice for it, I'm going to not want it. Because I realize that it's just going to be another thing occupying space and resources that, that I will never get any true joy or use from. And, and I wonder in, in the homes of America throughout, throughout the whole nation, how much stuff is there out there like that that we look at and go, I'm going to keep that, but I really don't know why. Um, so this sounds almost like I'm going back into my consumerism talk that I did last week, but I'm really not. Uh, we're we're going to hit these two big subjects here, the practical considerations for self-sufficiency and self-reliance hard starting now. And, and the first thing we have to do if we're going to have this discussion and do it honestly and understand where we're trying to get to in the world is preppers, is homesteaders, is citizens. is people that are concerned with anything from civil defense to civil disobedience and, and anything else in between. Um, we have to define the difference between the two terms. And to me, these terms get used interconnectedly uh, and, and get substituted for each other all the time. And, and I completely uh, disagree with anybody that thinks the two things are the same. 
I, I think you're completely wrong, and I don't think you understand the underlying subject, and I don't mean to beat up on anybody, but I just want you to understand how important I think this distinction really is. Self-reliance is the ability to survive without systems of support when they fail. In other words, self-reliance is your flashlight, and if the lights go out, you have a battery in there, and you click a button, and a light comes on, and you can see so you don't stub your toe or break your neck, and you can take care of other things, and you have self-reliance for lighting. Self-sufficiency is something you rely on all the time. Self-sufficiency is its own independent system that's not dependent on somebody else's system. Self-sufficiency is the solar panels on your roof, wired to batteries and wired to lighting, that provides you light every day, even when the system of support is currently available. Even when the electrical grid is up, if you're lighting a certain percentage of your house, you have self-sufficiency for that percentage. That that brings me to the easiest way you can understand the difference, the differential between the two of them, and and, and really I think the way that you'll you'll understand why it's even why does Jack even care about this? Why is this distinction important? Why has he spent so much time already just beating it up? Well, here's why: because we measure self-reliance in time. Okay, and you could make a case that the, the 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 solar panels and the and the battery and the light and the self-sufficiency example I gave have a lifetime or life cycle, but the life cycle is very very long, and I have an awful lot of time to repair components and make it indefinite as far as my life cycle, my personal life cycle is confirmed. But my flashlight and my battery in there, when I turn it on. It's it's definitely finite. I only have so much light, and it'll only do so much of my lighting requirements for me. It's not great for three people to sit around and read three different books with, right? Or one person to work on one project, one person work on another project, one person read a book. It's it's very isolated. So it's measured in time forward. So even if I have something that seems far more universal, like a generator, let's say I have a 500 gallon propane tank. And I have a whole house 20k generator system, and if the power goes out, the lights go out, and then I hear, and everything comes back on, and it's almost like nothing ever happened at all. That's still self-reliance, because eventually, if the grid does not come back up, or takes too long to come back up, or I use too much of the power while the thing's running, so it runs full tilt more, eventually the generator goes bah. And at that point, the lights go back off, and everything else goes away with it. So self-reliance is measured in time, right? Self-reliance is about I would prefer not to have to use this system, but it's there in case the other systems fail, and that makes self-reliance wholly self-limiting. It also is true that self-reliance is the main thing people focus on when they initially move into a prepper mentality. I am focused on disaster. Something has scared me and brought me into the fold, so to speak. So I start doing things like storing food. It's a self-reliance move. I'm not saying it's bad. I do it. You should do it too. There's a place for both of these, but we need to understand the difference. So if I store six months worth of food, I have six months worth of self-reliance for food. Okay, so I measure it in time, and in any other circumstance, if it's self-reliance, it's going to have, be a finite resource that's held in reserve in case another system fails. It's not used every single day. There is some overlap. You carry a neck knife. It's a self-reliance tool. 
If a system fails, I can use it to create something else, but it's also a self-sufficiency tool because I use it every day, and I can keep creating with it almost forever and indefinitely if I have enough skill sets. So there is an overlap. But let's move to the next one now so we can fully complete this circle as we move forward and understand how it applies to our lives. Self-sufficiency we measure in percentage. Okay, Remember I was talking about the solar panels on your roof and your lighting? All right, so that is indefinite for the sake of a human life cycle. Even if we look at a 25-year system, it is such a long duration. There are so many opportunities for component repair and replacement that, that we definitely have a system that can take us 50 years. And if we're 30, then generally we're hitting life expectancy for a lot of people, the human life expectancy. So it, it definitely has the potential. And, and the only thing that is going to happen is the ability to build from it, to increase its efficiency, uh, to repair it is going to increase over time. Because we're going to learn more and more things are going to become available uh, from scavenging and salvaging to, if the economy does great, manufacturing and efficiency improvements. So it's a self-sufficiency. But let's say I'm, I have that, but I'm still tied into the grid. And let's say that I look at my total kilowatt usage uh, a month and I determine that my solar panels, my battery, my wind machine, whatever's producing energy is producing 30% of the power that I'm using on a daily basis. Well, I am 30% self-sufficient in regard to energy based on my current user demand. Okay. Now, I can also look at that and say, of the, of the, the, the 70%, I'm still drawing from the grid. How much do I need and how much am I using because I freaking feel like it? Right? You know, how much do I really need for happiness in my life and how much is just extra? And if there's 10% extra, then really I'm kind of 40% there, right? I'm just choosing to take more while I can. It's there. It's in reserve. It's waiting. I also might get to a point where I'm 30 to 40% self-sufficient with my energy production. And I'm actually a 100% self-sufficient from a needs standpoint. If I can light my home, if I can basically do the things that I need to do, if I can get the job done to, to feed myself, clothe myself, and, and be relatively comfortable in my home, if I can incorporate things like passive heating, passive cooling, uh, solar air gain heating, I, I can do things like uh, irrigation-based uh, cooling of the home and all different types of things like that, build my home, you know, whatever I can do, even if I choose to use from the grid, I might be 100% self-sufficient for needs, but only 50% self-sufficient for daily living. Okay, And I'm actually using the self-sufficiency as a self-reliance component. In other words, I'll back off and I'll only use this much, but for, for the sake of argument, you know, say in a 15-year system, a 10-year system, it's indefinite. If you have 10 years out of a system to work when it needs to work, you have 10 years to figure out how to make it work for 11 Right, and then you got one more year. So there's there is a gray line there, but it's a very broad, very dark gray line. It's not hard to delineate between the two areas. And I think that the problem that most people have when they come into the prepper world is they gravitate toward one of these things to the exclusion of the other. All right. And I think this is where people start to get confused and they start to buy more and more stuff and they start to accumulate things and they still don't actually get any more self-sufficient. Uh, they probably do get more self-reliant because they probably are more prepared for the blackout, whether it's long-term or short-term, but they don't get more self-sufficient. And they don't get the advantages that I talk about of improving your life even if nothing goes wrong. They don't cut their expenses. They don't improve their quality of life. Because they eat, and it doesn't even matter which way they go. 
which might sound crazy, but hear me out. It's easy to understand how the person who focuses 100% on self-reliance quotient um, doesn't improve their daily life because all they have are stockpiles of food and batteries and generators and fuel and medical supplies and a whole bunch of stuff stocked up. So if it fails, it's there. And if it doesn't fail, I really don't want to use it. I'll use just enough of the things that are perishable to keep them in rotation. But basically, all that stuff is like a bank account, right? It's money that's there as an emergency fund. In fact, it works the exact same way. If I put money in the bank in case I lose my job, and I lose my job, and I withdraw money and buy food, right? Uh, it's the same as if I put the food in the house, store the food that's a long-term storable food, and if I lose my job and I need the food instead of getting the money out of the bank and spending it, I just take the food that's already there, and it actually costs me less because I don't drive to the store. The prepper knows that I might also be preparing for an event where I can't go to the store, where I can't get my money out of the bank, or even if I have my money buried in a hole in the back of the ground, I still can't go to the store. Right? So the prepper sees this at a bigger level and puts the food away in the home or stockpiled or cached somewhere that they can get to it. Right? But it's still limited. Now, the other extreme, the person that focuses on self-sufficiency, and if something doesn't give them a hundred percent, it's not good enough. These are the people that either move out like a like to a hippie commune around the middle of the desert and build an earth ship, and if that's your bag, so be it. And yes, you're you're very, very self sufficient if you pull that off and you're not actually driving to the store once a month, two hundred miles round trip, and stocking up for the next month and diluting yourself. And some people are, and great for them. But that is not realistic for the average person. The average person listening to this right now, even though I've told you not to for years, is carrying debt, which means you have to have an income. Right, and you probably need an income even without debt. You just need a more a significant income until you get the debt to go away. So we're going to have a job, which means we're going to have to live somewhere in proximity to the job, or we're going to have to telecommute, and then there's expenses that go along with that. So they're in this this kind of somewhat gerbil wheel trap to a degree. And they need to get out. Now, if that person tries to knee-jerk out to the Arizona desert in an earth ship, they're probably going to destroy their lives and the lives of their family, especially if they have kids and wives and things like that. They're going to have to slowly extricate themselves and begin this journey. If they only, if they look at something and go, well, if I put more insulation in my house and cut my electric bill by 20%, that doesn't really give me electricity if the grid goes down. Yeah, dummy, but it cuts your electric bill by 20%, and that money can be applied to debt or other self-sufficiency or self-reliance or just saved. All right, And your house is more comfortable. Trust me, if you can increase the, the, the cooling efficiency in your home by 20%, even if money's not an option, it's easier uh, to keep the, the, the home comfortable, which is what you're trying to do in the first place. It also is going to increase the lifespan of the components in the system. So... To me, one of the first things that you do when you're saying to yourself, how do I make myself more self-sufficient and measure percentages of this is to reduce the need on the input. Now, here's where you get into the gray area, right? If I cut the power need by 20%, but I'm still getting 100% from the grid, the skeptic says accurately, you're still relying 100% on the grid. Yes, but I'm conserving 20% of my personal financial resource. And that can be used to further my self-sufficiency either right here as I move into an alternative energy and then or to extricate myself from here, get the hell out and go somewhere else and, and start from scratch or find something closer to what I want. So we have to look at self-sufficiency in how we can do two things. One is increase 
our actual self-sufficiency and percentage and to reduce what we need to take in the first place. And the further we reduce it, this is where it gets exciting, the further we reduce it, the less system we need to build it up. So if I go and I create a home, whether I retrofit this or build this from scratch, and I insulate the hell out of it, and my requirements for cooling and heating go down 25% over my current situation, whatever it is. Now I only need 75% of the inputs to get the same result. But I can go further. I also know that one of the easiest things in the world to do to a home is to heat it up even when it's very cold outside using solar gain. So if I build some very inexpensive solar heating devices, now I've reduced the power requirement for heat. I don't care if I'm getting it from propane. I don't care if I'm getting it from wood. I don't care if I'm getting it from electric. No matter what, my inputs required have gone down because my system is now passive. So now it costs less to heat the home. If I want to cool the home better and I build it orientated right, I put a pergoda on it, I grow food on top of the pergoda, and I create a passive cooling system. In addition to that, if let's say I'm going to irrigate certain crops or food or plants around my home anyway, if I run the water up onto the roof, down off the roof, into the gutters, and whenever I run my irrigation cycle, I do that, I actually create cooling. I'll probably use twice as much water. But if I have a well and I have a backup power system that can run the well, I have self-sufficiency, and I'm going to do it anyway. And unless I live in the desert or someplace where that's really, really wasteful, it may make an awful lot of sense. It may not. I have to make these determinations for myself. But there are many things I can do to a home that if I do them, I can reduce the required inputs. Every single one of them reduces my output of expense. There is no free energy. Okay? There is no free energy. There is very, very cheap energy, and there is very, very expensive energy, but for you as a human being, there's no free energy. If you want your house warm, and you build it facing the sun, and put lots of glass on that side of the house, and set it up so the sun angle in the winter heats the house, you'd say that's free energy. No. Cost of construction. You had to make a decision for the house to face a certain way. Maybe you preferred to face it to the, to the, to the north because there was a beautiful view there. So you've made a sacrifice, right? You had to put the glass in. If you build a cheap solar heater, you drive down the road, you get free glass like Stephen Harris teaches you. You make a black box from salvage wood. You get free paint from somebody that gave it to you. You paint the box. You stick it in your window. It heats your house. You'd say, come on, Jack, that's free energy. No, you had to build it. It's very cheap. It's very cheap, but there's a cost associated with all energy. Well, I get wood off my own property. I go out, I cut it, I bring it back to the house, I throw it in the fireplace. Uh, okay, fine, I paid for the match, but otherwise it's free. No, you had to gather it, you had to cut it, you had to split it, you had to season it. You had to use it for fire versus maybe using it for something else. We know there's other things we could do with that wood, right? I built a rocket mass heater. So I heat my house and I only use a little handful of wood every day. It's free. No, you still have to gather the wood. You had to build a rocket mass heater. You had to gain the knowledge. You had to expend the energy. You, you gave up space in your home. No matter what, you gotta understand this. Energy is never free. Right? If it was, it wouldn't be energy. Right? Energy requires, if nothing else, even if it's freely available, a system to harness and channel it. 
And in there we, we, we pay an expense. A construction expense, a time expense, a sacrifice expense. So if I want as much self-sufficiency in my life, and I do, then I have to think about efficiency. This is why I love permaculture. Permaculture is not just about growing plants and trees and bushes and food forests and swales and, and hugel culture. Permaculture is much more evolved and much more advanced than that. There's permaculture approaches to managing capital. Uh, actually, nine forms of capital, with, with financial capital only being one of the nine. Things like social capital, intellectual capital, these things are also in there. And permaculture, even when we're talking about growing a tree or, or planting a garden, a, a, a gardener, a process-driven gardener, someone that thinks very, very deep about how to put a garden in, thinks about the garden from a standpoint of what will give me the greatest yield per square foot or square meter or per acre, and how can I do this in a way that requires the least amount of inputs, and how can I do this in a way that gives me the greatest quantity of output, how can I take care of the soil, how can I manage the land, how can I do all these wonderful things, and that seems very permaculturist. But what's missing from a permaculture approach to this is that a permaculturist says, how many trips will I take there every day, every week, every month? Where do I live? And how will I get there? And what paths will I follow? How do I set this up so that I get everything the process-driven gardener wants but I get an efficiency of use for me, the user, so that I put the least amount of effort into management of this system since it's supposed to be as close to a natural system as I can get. And the further I move out in a permaculture system from my dwelling, with zone zero being my house and zone five being wilderness, and zone one being my annual garden, and zone two being maybe where my compost bin, my wood pile, my chickens, uh, you know, some bushes and shrubs and perennials are. Um, in the further I move out, the more important it is for me to consider the efficiencies on some levels because when I go there, I'm expending more energy to get there. But on some other levels, the zone zero, zone one are the most intense as far as the, the efficiency because I'm going to spend most of my time there. I'm going to do most of my work there. So self-sufficiency requires that. And that's why, you know, a lot of times you, you listen to my shows where I talk about permaculture, and if you get the op opinion that permaculture is nothing but growing food, then you start to wonder, like, does this guy care about anything but gardening? And the reality is I care about the process, and I care about the planning, and I care about the design. And I care about the design of the home. I care about the design of the homestead. I can, but I really care more about anything else about the design of the lifestyle. And if you look at my show and you go to the survivalpodcast.com and you click on the tags where you can see shows that were tagged a certain way, you'll see that there's an awful lot of shows tagged with something called lifestyle design. And I think that the big problem with self-sufficiency, with self-reliance, with consumerism, with corporatism, with the way we live our lives, with the way we educate our children, with the way that we, we go to work, the way we come home, the way we manage our finances, the way we do all of this stuff, is we design nothing. We don't design anything anymore. We really don't. What we do is we accept somebody else's version of a design. Why do most Americans buy a three-bedroom, two-bathroom home as a starter home? Because a system has been set up in suburbia that says, this is your starter home. This is where you go first, and you live here for a few years, and then when you have one too many kids for you to feel comfortable in this home anymore, you look for the four- or five-bedroom McMansion, you sell that to somebody else who needs a starter home who's coming up, you take the equity build, and you go in and you buy the McMansion. 
And then you move there. And if it's not a big enough McMansion, well, maybe you move again. Maybe you do this four or five or six times uh, as a young couple coming up until you end up being old people in a house that's empty. And it, that is a terrible design system. It, it really, it's a horrible designed system. The, the, and not only is the system as I just described it horribly designed, but the homes are horribly designed. They're not energy efficient. No thought is given when a home is built today in a subdivision about the orientation that the home faces for solar gain and, 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 and for, for passive cooling. None. None. How many houses can I fit in here in this neighbor built with multiple rolls and multiple cul-de-sacs that will give me the optimum return on building cookie-cutter houses and even the custom-designed, quote-unquote, McMansion is a cookie-cutter house? I've been in houses that are $100,000. I've been in houses that are $50,000. I've been in houses that are $5 million. And I'll tell you what, until you get up into like the Malibu Mansion style houses that are custom built, where the guy has an architect design it himself, they're all basically more of the same. We make the rooms bigger, we, we, we put a media room in, etc., but basically they're all the same. Now, very few people, if you sat them down and said, Mr. Smith, uh, we're going to let you build your own house today. Here's a magic marker and a piece of paper. Uh, draw a floor plan. And if you took that person before you did that and said, here's your piece of land, you gave them a square piece of land, say, this is a half of an acre, this is where your house is going to go, here's your roads, here's your prevailing winds, here's where the sun comes up, here's where it goes down, here's where it rises in the spring and sets in the spring, rises in the summer, sets in the summer, fall and winter as well. Okay, um, here's the average temperature in the summer. Here's the average temperature in the winter. Here's the vegetation that grows around your home. And you actually gave them this full education. Would design a home that looks anything like what we live in today. If we took the same person and sat them down at, let's say, 20 years old, when they have a basic education, hopefully, and they, they know what's going on around them and said, listen... I want you to design a lifestyle for yourself before you go to college or get a career or get a job or do anything or get debt. Uh, you know, maybe we need to start at like 17. So that, the, but if you sat down and said design your life, very few would say I want to work in middle management, sit in a cubicle, uh, drive two hours a day, an hour there, an hour back, and work. Have three kids that I can't give everything I want to that think that I'm holding back even though that I'm not. Only seem, I mean, if you look at the lifestyle that people live today, no one would sit down and design it. Why are we living it? Why, why if we, if no one would design a home the way that we do, and no one would design a lifestyle the way that we do, if you said, I want you to design your financial future at 17 and gave the person, you know, got them out of the clouds enough to stop thinking about drinking with the college buddies or whatever when they go off to college and chasing girls or chasing boys or whatever, and said, we want to be just real for a minute. Just pull out of all that youthful exuberance. Think about your future and design your financial future. No one would say, I want 25 to 30% of the money I work for to go to fund a house that I only spend eight hours a day in if I'm lucky. They wouldn't do it. No one would say, I want to buy a whole bunch of crap by the time I'm 30 that's already broken, pay for it with a credit card, and then owe money on it for another 10 years after it's gone and useless. No one would say, I want to, I want to pay for my education with a loan 
that I'm going to have for 30 to 40 years after I graduate. No one would design a financial future the way the majority of Americans are living. So why are we living that way? Because we paint, and this is where you're going, is this a consumer show, is this a debt show, or is this self-sufficiency and self-reliance? That's why. That's the problem. We don't focus on self-reliance and self-sufficiency. The question never even comes up. We live in a world of perceived abundance where everything is expected to be there, including the income to pay to the debt. If we were thinking at all about at, at 17 as young people, 18, 19, 20-year-old young people, about our future going forward, the way we want our house exactly to be, and if we took all the magazines to tell us what a house is supposed to look like and threw them away and said, how do I want to live, we would have completely different designed homes. If we took away all of the things that say Johnny needs to be a doctor and Tommy needs to be a lawyer and the only future is this way, some people would still walk a path that would lead them to being a lawyer or a doctor. And God bless them. We need doctors and lawyers both in this world. I think doctors more than lawyers, but there's places where the common guy needs a good lawyer to get justice. Right? And there would be middle managers and there would be, and all of this stuff would exist. But the people that were there would actually fit the mold. And we have so many people jammed into these positions. We have a surplus of just about everything except doctors today. That problem will get worse. As more doctors don't want to participate in the current system. But the reality is we have way more people to sit in cubicles than we need cubicles and people sitting in. We have way more people doing way more things than anybody needs to do. The efficiencies of manufacturing and technology that exist today could allow every human being in America today to work 20% of the time they work, and we could still have just about everything we need. If you eliminate all the crap, all the time that people are doing stuff that doesn't really produce anything, you know, if you look at the typical eight-hour day, and if you took away, for, for a, a typical business person, if you took away the two hours of useless meetings, the two hours of wasting time talking to people because you don't really need to do much, and then the four, took only the four hours that they crammed their effort into, they could work four hours a day. But who would pay them a full-time salary to do that? But if we, if we start out with the question, how do I design my life in a way that will provide me with self-reliance and self-sufficiency? How much self-reliance and time do I need for my personal comfort? In other words, how much emergency fund of resources instead of just money, right? Food, water, shelter, energy, security, right? All of those how much do I how much buffer do I need there? And how much independence and autonomy do I want? If we design our lifestyles, our homes, our finances, everything like that going from the beginning, then we would have much better designed lives. Has anybody ever asked you what kind of life do you want and how are you going to design it? I'm asking you today. So here's what I want. I'm sure everybody out there that's followed me this far today and said, yeah, I do. I, I, I wish I would have been 17. Stop wishing and start doing. Because here's the, the reality. No, nobody and nothing is stopping you from doing this now. No one out there can do anything to prevent you from taking control of your life and starting to design it around two key components, self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Here's the big thing. I do believe that when people fall into this industry and focus heavily on self-reliance first, it's a good thing, as long as they don't stay in it in a myopic way. Self-reliance, by being a time measurement forward, is the buffer that you need. You know how when I tell you to get out of debt, 
I said, the first thing you do is just keep paying your minimum debts and take all the extra money you can get and put it into a cash emergency fund until you have a thousand or two thousand dollars in an emergency fund and have that in a little, its own little separate bank account and then start taking all that surplus money you used to build up that thousand dollar fund and now start paying your debt and get your first debt and go to your second debt. I tell you how to do that. The reason I tell you that is when the brakes go out on your car and you're almost done paying MasterCard off and you need $800 for those brakes because you got to go to work, take the $800 out of your emergency fund and do no further damage on the debt side. Then we refund the emergency fund and go back to minimum payments, and then we go back to paying the debt again. And the debt continues to decline instead of grow. That's the only way out. So when you're trying to build a self-sufficient lifestyle, building self-reliance first makes sense because it's like having a whole bunch of emergency funds. It's an emergency fund for food. It's an emergency fund for energy. It's emergency funds for every... It's, it's skill sets. Self-reliance is more about skills than stuff. If you can fix something when it breaks, well, you have a lot of... You, you know, you, you actually start to... The two worlds start to come together right there. So it's important to build the buffer. But then we need to turn to self-sufficiency. And I want to talk a little bit about the role land plays in this. I'm a big proponent of land. I'm a big proponent of cheap land. And when I say cheap, I don't mean so much the cost of the land. I mean the cost of the ownership of the land. What does it cost you to, to maintain, build, and use the land? Now, let me explain something to you. If, if you go buy uh, 10 acres for $400 out in the middle of the West Texas desert, and you live 12 hours away from there, and your property taxes are $19, yeah, it's cheap, but it's useless. Unless you go there and do something with it and make something come out of it, which you've, you've given yourself a really high hurdle to cross to get anything good to come out of there. It's freaking desert. It's sand and rock and gravel. Can things be done in environments like that? Yes, but they're very difficult. Conversely, if you buy yourself a beautiful one-acre suburban lot on the edge of the of a small town where you get the best of both worlds and it's a really nice place and even with civil unrest and things like that you've got a pretty good buffer and you're probably going to be okay and you do have a good community around you and all but your property taxes are six thousand dollars a year then you can get six thousand dollars worth of food out of your property and you're just back to par so the cost of land is about the initial cost the cost of maintenance, and about what does it provide for you. And that's why I like rural America. True rural. I don't like this uh, edge concept. It's nothing but an expanding sprawl of suburbs. And if it's a nice enough area and there's enough success in the area, all that happens is it becomes less of an edge and more of a part of the whole. So that's why I like getting out. I like to get out into a place where there's not going to be more. There's no room for more. It's not possible to do more. You know, if they put in three more houses, that would use up all the available land that's for sale. Uh, the, the way the, the way things are is pretty much the way things are going to be because now I have a known quantitative uh, factor to work with. So I know if I go in and I do something like put in a chicken coop, nobody's going to come along and tell me I have to take it down later. And if I live anywhere other than that type of environment, I don't know that. So my self-sufficiency, chickens that lay eggs, that produce more chickens and more eggs, and even if I'm not living on a lot of chickens, maybe I'm only slaughtering 12 a year, one a month, that's one meal a month, 
Um, and I'm just, I'm just doing enough so that, and these are old chickens that I'm stewing and worn out layers and things like that. Uh, not my rotisserie chicken that I'm buying from the farmer down the road. Uh, but I'm just doing that so I keep chickens in the flock that are young enough to lay eggs and, 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 and be part of the system. And as they get old, I retire them. Uh, that's very self-sufficient. I'm not just going to use those chickens, uh, their inputs, their outputs. I'm not just going to put them into my garden uh, and have them scratch and eat all the insects out when times get tough. I'm going to have them doing that every day. I'm not just going to eat their eggs when I can't afford to go to the grocery store. I'm going to eat eggs a lot. Uh, even if I get to a point where I have a surplus of eggs, I can't give them away. I can't barter them all away, and I only want to eat them all. Well, I, if I keep something like a dog on my homestead for defense and for protection and for uh, managing my wildlife, well, the eggs make great food for the dog. So that's less dog food. So the whole thing's self-sufficiency. If someone can come turn it off, say, Mr. Spearco, take down the chicken pen, get rid of the chickens, it was only self-reliance because it only lasted for a time. It ran out. So if I'm going to design my lifestyle, I want to design my lifestyle free of restriction, so that whatever I design, I can keep. I don't want someone coming out and going, uh, you need a permit for that. right? I was reading one of Stephen Harris's books, Sunshine to Dollars, and he had this really beautiful uh, greenhouse, permanently attached greenhouse he was putting on the side of his home. He never finished it, and he actually changed it to a way where it could be easily removed and taken on and put back off so that uh, it wasn't a permanent structure, because with a permanent structure, you'd need a permit. What was the problem getting the permit? person came out to his house to issue the permit. He did everything above board. said, yeah, come on out, see what I'm doing, get me my permit, I'll pay for it. problem was that you paid for the permit based on a percentage of the cost of the project. So I think he had like $19 in the project, so the permit was like $1.90 or something, you know, I mean like 19 cents, it was like 1% or something like that, because uh, he lives in Illinois in the land of socialist utopia, right? Uh, so if it would have been $19,000, I guess maybe it would have been $190 for the permit or $1,900, I don't know, whatever it worked out. Problem? He got all the glass for free. And the way he tells you how to do it in the book. He called up glass companies and said, you got extra glass laying around that you, you, you can't use and you don't want to pay to get rid of? I'll come get it for free. So they gave him all the glass. So he went out and got all the glass for free. So all he bought was, a, and he scrounged a bunch of lumber. So all he bought was some lumber, about $19 worth. And the person that was supposed to issue him the permit would not issue him the permit because he didn't believe he got the glass for free and didn't believe that the, the project cost could be $19. I don't want that in my life. I really do not want that type of interference from anybody in my life. I've seen home improvement shows where they, you know, flip this house type thing. Guy goes in, buys a house. House has been there for a hundred years. Wants to put a new window in the house. Cut a hole in one side of the house and stick glass in there because the fire code can't put a window in there because there's already a limit has been reached on how many windows can be on that side of the house. Down the road is a house with three more windows on one side of the house, but those windows were there when the house was built, so they're grandfathered in. That guy can have three extra windows on the side. This other guy that wants to put the window in can't do it at all. But the same fire code people that say he can't have the window tell him he has to have a window to finish the room in the basement so that somebody in that room could use the window to get out. So what does he have to do? He has to take one of the other windows that are already there and wall it back in so that he doesn't exceed his allowances for windows. 
I'm sorry. I, if I am going to be the architect of my life, if I'm going to be an architect of self-reliance and self-sufficiency in my life, I don't need that kind of bullshit. And you'd be amazed at some of these small towns and small communities and small suburbs that are just the best of both worlds where that kind of crap happens all the damn time. So my view is... If you really want self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and lifestyle design control, you need a rural area, you need a state free of a lot of this crap, you need to go into an unincorporated or county area or somewhere where this type of stuff doesn't go on. Or if you want to build a deck, you just build a deck. There isn't even a permit for a deck. I didn't pull permits when I built decks at my house. I'm going to put it in a greenhouse. I'm not going to pull permits. You know why? If I call the county, I'm saying, do I need a permit? They get, no. Great. First question you know you want to ask. What requires a permit here? And how hard is that permit to get? There are compromises in places where you say, okay, fine, you need a permit. You know, if it's, there's, there's some places I know where basically the permit, the guy didn't even show up, right? You file the paperwork, you give them 20 bucks or whatever, they give you a permit. Well, fine. That, that, that I don't like, but I can accept it. I can live within it. But I, I, I can't live with it if it's going to make something that I want to do impossible. Or make something that I have done that's harmed nobody, that's providing me with something valuable, go away. So, what I'm kind of challenging you guys to do today, and again, I, when I do shows like this, like, I get, really get scared. That I'm going to get an email from an angry wife or an angry husband that's like, he listened to you and he quit his job and now we're, you know, don't do that, right? You have to, if you've, it, it's just like Social Security. I believe that's the Medicaid's worse. So let's say Medicaid. It's just like Medicaid. I believe that Medicaid is an unmitigated disaster. I don't believe that it can continue. I don't believe that there's any way to save it or fix it with its current system. I think we have to change the entire underlying system and rebuild it as a brand new thing to provide some level of medical care to people once they get beyond their working years uh, where they can at least get certain types of things. Uh, but with a $50 trillion hole in a system, it's not self-sufficient and it's not self-reliant uh, it's self-reliance is a very short-term cycle forward so I believe it has to go away I believe Social Security should go away and that people should have that 12 to 14 percent of their income back in their pockets and do with it as they please but I also am realist We've had those systems in place for a long time. There's a lot of people dependent upon them. There's a lot of people that didn't have the 12 to 14 percent of their income to use to build self-sufficiency and self-reliance. We can't just pull the rug out from underneath those people. So if you put me in charge, if you made me dictator of the United States and said, Jack, now you've promised to get rid of Social Security, do it, I would put in a plan to phase it out. And I would implement it immediately. I'd get all the bean counters together and say, let's do the best we can. Here's what I want. Here's how long it can last. Here's how I want to, want to be out by. Here's how I want different age limits coming out. You make the numbers work as best you can. I'll deal with the consequences, and I would do it. But I would not say tomorrow, Social Security's over. Nobody pays it. Nobody gets it. Can't do that. Well, mo many of you are in places in your life like that, where you know this whole build a house or design a house or find a house and get out, blah, blah. You just can't do it tomorrow morning. When I got on the air... In the very beginning, I was a couple to three years into my plan to get out. And I spent the next two and a half years talking to you about getting out and saying, you know, bringing different things into the show and saying, this is what I'm doing now and this is how it affects our plans to get out. The two year deadline came and went 
and I was still there. And it took six more months to do it, and now we're out. And I hope you learned that you're looking at a five to six year cycle with just that portion of the cycle. But the reality was we started thinking this way when I first met Dorothy and Matthew. When I first became his stepfather. Even though we went away from it and got into the corporate side of things and liked all the money and everything else for a while. But I was 24 years old. And I was already thinking this way. And I was already putting some things in place to get out. I'm 39 today. We've been here less than a year. So that's 24 to 39. That's a lot of years. I wish I would have understood what I'm telling you today at 24. I wish I would have understood it at 17. I wish when I was 17 I had listened to that 17-year-old kid. The 17-year-old kid kept talking to me all the way through my life, 24, 25, 26, buying stuff, you know, buying houses. And some of it worked out for the good, but there was times when that kid was going, Dude, no, I don't do it. Let's go fishing. Right? Let's get fishing. It's free. It's cheap. Let's go fishing. I went, nah, shut up. i got to be a man. got to take care of the family. He said, dude, you're not taking care of the family. Go get some food. Put it on their plate and let them eat it. Right? That's the, nah, we need a house. So I had that internal conflict going on. But I would say the point of resolution where I said it's time to take control and extricate ourselves fully from this would have been about 2005. That was really the demarcation point. 2001 was a wake-up call um, with September 11 and getting out of part of what was going on. But around 2005, 2006, I said, that's it. There needs to be an exit strategy. It was before, the TSP came out in 2008. So 2005 to 2011, six years of extrication. And it's still not where I want it, but it's a hell of a lot further along the way. And now it's nothing but tweaking building, developing, and continuing to get rid of things. I mean, that's that's my latest thing now, is I'm just looking around, eyeballing everything in my office and my home. What does that do? Do I need it? Does it belong here? And more and more things I'm thinking about going, no, it doesn't. I don't need that anymore. What I need is a system, not a stuff. I also am getting to the point now where whenever we go to spend money, it's not about cheap. It's not about even frugality. Right, Because if, if we decide, you know what, it's been about three weeks since we went out, so we get a really good steak. Let's get great service. Let's have a glass of great wine. And that's going to cost me way more than cooking on the grill. I'll do that. That's the experience. Because I live a frugal life. I can do that once in a while. It doesn't. It don't have to pull out the Amex card to do it. But what I'm saying, more than the money, if I'm going to buy the thing, the stuff, the thing in my hand, and it's going to occupy space in my home, it's not just the, the cash flow out, it's the, 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 the inflow, the, the ingress of the object, right? The egress of the cash and the ingress of the object. What am I going to do with the object? How long is it going to last me? Do I have anything that does it now? Am I going to end up with this thing sitting on the shelf occupying space? And if so, I mean, I have some cool pictures on my wall of wolves and things like that. I like them, they make me happy. But I'm also looking at things and going, that picture there I haven't even looked at. Maybe somebody else could use it in their home. Maybe Habitat Humanity can use it. Because it doesn't further my self-sufficiency or self-reliance at all. And, and that's my challenge for you today, folks. To think from a design perspective going forward. 
I want everybody out there to have a journal. I don't care if it's a blog. I don't care if it's online. I don't care if it's a Word document. Uh, but honestly, a nice leather-bound book that you write in is probably best for this. And, and work out scenarios in it of design. Start thinking more like a lifestyle engineer. You know, that's, that, that's the thing. We don't think that way in our world today. We follow the given path laid out before us as society has dictated. And most decisions that most people make that have serious long-term consequences in their lives, both good and bad, are made based on the society expectation and fitting into the current design rather than developing one of your own. You know, I had Courtney Clay on, the unschooler, recently, and somebody asked a, a question in the comments thread. Sounds nice, but what kind of jobs does she have? What, what is she qualified to do? And my response is, if she's happy and she's not living off somebody else's efforts, I really don't care. Maybe learning how to do things like designing an eco-village is actually a valid skill if you design an eco-village and it sustains you and other people. Maybe it's actually a hell of a lot more valid than being a mid-level programmer in a company that makes software designed to market credit cards to stupid people. And there's a lot of people that have that job don't even know that's what their job is. I'm a systems developer. Who do you work for? MasterCard. Oh, okay. What do you do? And they'll explain it to you. And you go, oh, so what you do is you design software that helps this company market its product to stupid people to get them into debt. Oh, I have a highly respected career. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But is that what you would have designed for yourself? Is a person that develops an entire community of other individuals that get together and live peacefully and don't ask for anything from anybody else, that feeds themselves, that develops themselves in a way that teaches other people to do it, are they not at least, I don't care whether they have a degree or what they get paid or what their salary is, aren't they at least equally valid to the person that designs software to sell debt to stupid people that doesn't even know that's what he's really doing? Well, I define a statistical analysis tool that allows the executives to determine what core markets, and that you're selling debt to stupid people. And there's a million jobs like that out there that we see as respected because society has said they're respected. And your self-sufficiency in them is zero. Your self-reliance in them is zero unless it's financially based and then it's very, very finite in nature. And I don't think most people would design lifestyles for them like the ones that we're living now. Have you ever noticed that most people that dream of becoming wealthy uh, describe a lifestyle after they were wealthy and after you get done with the partying and everything else like that? But most people that really, especially in this world, this prepper, homesteadish world, describe a lifestyle that's not much different than the average redneck that lives in a single wide trailer has right now, right, with a few chickens and goats and stuff like that. So if this broke-ass person can successfully live that way, and you think you need a million dollars to live that way, I'm telling you there's a freaking disconnect, isn't there? Isn't there a freaking disconnect if that's where we're at as, as a group of people and what we really need and what we really want? And I'm asking you today something many people never get asked. What do you want in your life? How much self-sufficiency do you need to be happy. How much self-reliance do you need to be comfortable? I think I'm going to close on that note. That's the other thing. There's time and percentages. And then the other thing is self-sufficiency is about meeting your needs. 
It's about meeting your needs every day, and it's about comfort. So there's some want there, but it's about daily comfort. All right? But it's about need. You need to eat. You need to have energy. You need to have a roof over your head. You need to have quality of life. These things are needs, and if you don't think they are, even if you give people just the minimum of what they need to technically stay alive, they die a hell of a lot faster. They get more diseases. They have heart attacks. They have stress-related disorders. We have you know obese people that are 400 pounds and are malnourished. Right, so it's it, there, these things are actual needs to function as a human, as a human is designed to function. Self reliance is about comfort from a standpoint of not living at the edge, right? Because even some of my own self sufficiency systems may fail. Self reliance is the redundancy and the backup. So, how much of those two things do you need in your life? And, and most people that are preppers that are thinking about the long, anything from a long-term apocalypse to the short-term ice storm, have never asked themselves those two questions. And they're out questing for two things, self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And if they're lucky, they can at least articulate the difference like we started out with. But neither one of them are actually designing it. They're just throwing things at it. I need chickens. Why? Because someone's, do you, do you eat eggs? If you don't eat eggs, maybe chickens aren't your way forward. Maybe they are. I don't know. But if you don't eat eggs, if you if I said to you, how many eggs have you eaten in the last six months, and you say four, and they were all at Denny's, then then maybe that's not the way for you to go forward. Do you like to take care of chickens? When do you like to travel? When you're gone, who's going to take care of them? Right. So that's just one example. All of these things need to actually be designed and integrated into a, a collective system. You know, you want to live off on your own, but if you like social activities, maybe you don't. You know, if you live in a small community. The rural area without all the interference and everything. But if you live in a small community where two or three of you have chickens, when any one of you goes away, you don't have a hard time finding somebody to look after yours. They know to, they know what to do because they do it with their own. All of these things have to be integrated. So my challenge to you today is we begin the last quarter of 2011 and get ready to move into that vaulted year of 2012 is to start asking yourself, if I gave you a blank slate, and gave you a do-over on every mistake you ever made, and gave you enough resources to pull it off, what lifestyle would you design for yourself? And then ask yourself, by using the two practical uh, th things that we have to get there, self-sufficiency and self-reliance, how close can you get to it? And how short of a time can you make it till you get there? Doing everything right and not messing stuff up. And I think that it's probably a good thing I did this show today, because I think that's a question a lot of you guys needed to have asked. And I think if you start asking that, I think many of you that are very, very well along the path, probably time to take a step back and retool that. I know there's some of you, you're on farms, you got all the stuff going on, you got all the things the other people want, and you're still not totally happy with it. And it's not just about planning another thing there or say, the, 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 the flow's not there. Design it. Ask yourself, if I could redo this from the beginning, what direction would I face the house? You can't move the house. Maybe it's too expensive to build a new one. Probably is. But if you know why you would have done it, what can you do to retrofit it? If we can't be honest about our mistakes, we can't retrofit solutions into them. So you have to, if you're going to be a good designer, you understand that you know, I can't design around, you know, I can't design a mountain out of the landscape. If it's there, you can blow the top off of it. I've got to work with it. It creates shadow, it creates wind, it creates ice flow, it creates all kinds of things. I have to work with it. Well, God put the mountain there. Or geology put the mountain there. However you want to think about it. You have to deal with it. Many times the thing that's in your way, you put there. 
And when you put it there, it's very hard to accept that you put it there. Accept that you put it there. Accept its limitations and retrofit around it. Design your lifestyle. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.